Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we're continuing our story of politics in California by pivoting to the Democratic Party. I will be giving you, in broad strokes, the history of the Democratic Party in the 19th century and its divisions into northern and southern wings along pro- and anti-slavery lines before turning to California more specifically. Let's get started. While some people might trace the origins of the Democratic Party to Thomas Jefferson's ideology and politics that emerged in the early 19th century in opposition to the Federalist Party's program and principles, most historians would agree that the modern Democratic Party, and I say modern with quotation marks here, even though it differs dramatically from the party of Joe Biden today, this particular modern version of the Democratic Party emerged with the election of Andrew Jackson in the 1820s. In opposition to the elitist principles of the Federalist Party with its quasi-aristocratic assumptions about democracy and common people, Jackson's party, conversely, sought to glorify the everyday person and utilize federal power to promote growth and development across the United States. Interestingly, the party was simultaneously committed to states' rights and avoiding unnecessary federal interference. Eventually, the issue of slavery caused the Democratic Party to split along regional lines. Southern Democrats were focused on preserving the Southern way of life, meaning slavery, and latched on to the idea of states' rights as a way to argue that the federal government should not impede on their peculiar institution. This wing of the Democratic Party in southern states was referred to as the chivalry, or shivs. In contrast, northern Democrats, who were known colloquially as free soilers, wanted to contain, keep slavery in its place where it already existed, and took a moral stance against the institution. The chasm and enmity between these two wings grew larger and larger and more divisive as the U.S. expanded west. The Missouri Compromise preceded the Democratic Party, but the Compromise of 1850 worked to prevent a total conflagration or divorce between these two wings, but only temporarily. The conflict reached a dramatic tipping point with the passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise and allowed those two territories to decide the issue of slavery using popular sovereignty, meaning voting. The violence in Kansas created a national firestorm and accelerated the breakdown of this party, which ultimately resulted in the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. We're now going to turn to the Democratic Party as it existed in California. Just like in the rest of the United States, the Democratic Party in California was also divided along free soiler and shiv lines, but there were some key regional differences. For one, California was a new state and had less of the history of slavery and the baggage that the eastern states had. And then, most obviously, when California was admitted to the Union, it was admitted as a free state. So the central dividing issue of slavery was a non-factor in California. Moreover, 
California, unlike many of the eastern states, was highly urban and incredibly diverse due to the global immigration that flooded into California for the gold rush. The Democratic Party then focused on in California had much to do with economic development and removing indigenous people who were viewed as an obstacle to that growth and expansion. Many of the laws that were passed by the Democratic Party were in the pursuit of these goals. In spite of the absence of the central wedge that divided the party in the East, there still were internal divisions within the Democratic Party. For one, migration west meant that free solars tended to migrate to the northern half of the state, while the shivs were concentrated in the southern half. So now let's turn to the legislative action that the Democratic Party employed in California to realize their vision of what California should look like. The Democratic Party controlled the legislature in California for many of the first years of the state's existence and passed a series of laws that had lasting effects on the state and the region. First, let's break down the structure of the state legislature in California in the first 10 years of the state's existence. The legislature, like many state legislatures, was bicameral, a term you probably remember from high school, and you may know that it means two houses. To get more specific, the term has two parts, bi meaning two and camera meaning chamber. The origins of the concept of having two legislatures originated in ancient Greece, in their two chambers being the Council of 500, which resembles our Senate, and the Assembly of the People, which resembles our House of Representatives. The concept was used later by the Romans and was eventually conceptually fine-tuned in the Enlightenment. The bicameral legislature in California had a Senate and an Assembly. The Senate originally had 16 members that were elected to four-year terms, while the Assembly originally had 36 members elected to two-year terms. Those numbers lasted a year before the both houses were expanded, um, first the Senate to 22 members and then the Assembly to 63 members. The expansion was due to the massive migration and influx of gold seekers arriving in California. The legislature desired to keep pace with the growing population. The legislature, even though it was relatively new, had a massive organizational challenge in its hands, which were the features of a new and geographically, politically, sociologically, and economically unwieldy state in its control. For almost the entirety of the 1850s, the Democratic Party held a majority in the state legislature. Here are some basic numbers. In 1851 to 1852, in the session of the state legislature, the Democrats held nearly 77% of the seats in the Senate and 63% of the seats in the Assembly. In 1853 to 1854 session, the numbers remained roughly the same, with about 80% of the Senate seats and 65% of the seats in the Assembly controlled by the Democrats. Thus, the majorities mean that the Democrats, who also controlled the governor's office, could pass bills with little to no opposition. So now, let's get into what those laws were. Let's start with the foreign miners tax of 1850. We've discussed this before during some of our episodes on the gold rush, but here's a quick review of the basic background of the law. People were traveling from all around the world looking for gold. White Americans believed that they had a superior claim for the gold diggings as opposed to the immigrants that were coming from other places in the world. 
which is, of course, an ironic change from the policy during the Mexican period in which Americans were permitted to live and produce in foreign countries. The tenets of the law were this. The tax was set at $20 per month for each foreign miner. The law defined foreign miners as individuals who were not U.S. citizens or who had not declared their intent to become citizens. The tax was imposed on both individual miners and mining companies that employed foreign labor. The tax was designed to raise money for the state, but it ended up causing more problems than it solved and was eventually repealed in 1862, beyond the point of its relevancy when gold was still the driving force by which people were migrating to California. The next major piece of legislation passed by the democratically controlled state legislature was the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. Here are the basic tenets of the legislation as it was enacted. First, the law created a system of indentured servitude for Native Americans, which allowed any white citizen to employ an indigenous person or coerce them into working them for a set term, or to use more direct language, effectively a prison sentence. And these sentences could be up to four months in length. Naturally, this feature of the law led to a lot of corruption and bad practices in California. Secondly, the law also restricted indigenous people's ability to leave their work sites without permission from their employer, which meant they could not engage in activities that were common to their culture and society. The law also, despicably, made certain indigenous cultural activities illegal in California, including dancing, singing, and even gathering for religious festivities and ceremonies. Finally, the law sought to make reservations, but that was complicated by many factors that we will return to later. I want to place a marker here because I plan to return to discuss this law and its ramifications for indigenous people in the West in a later episode. There are some amazing books out there on the topic of indigenous debt peonage, or slavery by another name, that I will cover in more detail soon. I do believe that this topic deserves its own episode. If you'd like to read a good book on the topic, I would recommend the book The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America by Andres Resendez. The book was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the prestigious Bancroft Prize. But more importantly than those honors, it brought to light the history of a form of slavery that has not been adequately covered in public education in the United States. The final piece of legislation that we'll cover, which is something that we covered in a roundabout way in a previous episode, is the California Land Act of 1851. William Gwynn, the Southern Shiv Democrat, who we'll be spending some time with very soon, presented the bill to the U.S. Congress and it was passed and signed into law. The law established a three-member land commission whose job it was to investigate and validate, or invalidate, land claims in California. To validate land titles, individuals would need to prove through some means that they had legally acquired their land during either the Mexican or Spanish government's periods of control. In addition to that particular committee, they also created a land commission to survey and sell land that was considered unowned in California. Additionally, it was recognized that some land would need to be set aside for future public amenities like schools or government buildings. Finally, the law says that it also was supposed to protect and settle land claims of indigenous people. And you can imagine how that one turned out. 
The act of trying to settle a land claim followed this process. The first step was to review documents, if there were any, to attribute ownership to someone or some entity. After gathering evidence, the next step was to put out a public notice that includes the identity of the claimant and the evidence used to support the claim. These were followed by public hearings where individuals who claimed ownership could bring evidence and make their case. After the cases were made, the three-member panel would adjudicate and either determine ownership or reject the claim, or even grant a partial claim. Sometimes the claimant would dispute the result of the hearing and appeal to a higher court. The law certainly had built-in opportunities for corruption and bribery. There were claims that some of the commissioners themselves engaged in these corrupt practices in helping them to determine land claims. I would attribute this malfeasance to the lack of clear guidelines for them to adjudicate such claims. Where there are few rules, that's when raw power steps in to fill the gap. Each of these pieces of legislation was passed by a democratically controlled state legislature and signed into law by a democratic governor. In some ways, these laws were simply responses to the particular circumstances that was California at this time. But to conclude, each of these pieces of legislation were all designed for a similar purpose, to transition land, wealth, and power to white Americans. Next time, we will discuss two of the major figures in democratic politics in California. We'll see you then.